The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored by AnchorLight. For more information about all of AnchorLight's artistic and creative endeavors, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. Just a quick note that today's episode contains details of a violent and graphic nature. The crimes are over a century old, but the information is still horrifying. Please take care, and you have been warned. During my first year of graduate school, I spent hours upon hours each day shuffling from the classrooms to the library, checking out huge stacks of books in preparation for one of the four or five research papers required for my courses. You think that after being surrounded by books and reading, reading, reading all day that I would need a change of pace to blow off steam. And you'd be right. So I did my fair share of attending football games, binging on reality TV, and frequenting the campus pub. But if I am being really honest, my favorite place to go wasn't to a bar or a club. It was the bookstore. I loved getting lost in the aisles, perusing anything and everything, and usually spending too much money to add to my already overflowing bookshelves. I remember one day when I was browsing a new releases table and one particular book caught my eye. What I noticed first was the dust jacket. Its background was an old handwritten letter, across which a huge font in bright red letters the color of blood trumpeted the author's name, Patricia Cornwell. It seemed like yet another crime novel, one among hundreds, and I had never really read a Cornwell book, but I was sure that they weren't my taste. And so I moved on until I saw the subtitle of the book, Jack the Ripper, Case Closed. Now, I am as intrigued by unsolved crimes as much as the next person, so I cracked the cover of the book and began to read the dust jacket's accompanying description. In it, the author released a bombshell statement. She had purportedly solved the mystery of Jack the Ripper's identity, which has evaded researchers, historians, and police for over 100 years. And to those of us in the art world, her suspected killer hit a little close to home. A painter, and a well-known and much-praised one at that, had committed the famous murders, she wrote. Jack the Ripper, she said, was Walter Sickert. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. In season six, we are uncovering the dastardly deeds of several artists, including their involvement and participation in Murder Most Foul. Today's topic, the updated second half of our popular season one series. Was British painter Walter Sickert really Jack the Ripper? This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. If you're just tuning into the Art Curious podcast for the first time, welcome. And also, please stop and listen to the part one of this episode first and get the backstory on Jack the Ripper's crimes, as well as a brief biography of Walter Sickert. The rest of the episode will make a lot more sense that way. Now, let's get right to Patricia Cornwell and her jarring 2002 book, Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper Case Closed. Portrait of a Killer details the backstory behind Sicker's life and the Ripper crimes in hundreds of pages. Cornwell's theory hinges on a variety of potential evidence and concepts, 
many taken from modern-day psychological studies on serial killers as well as modern forensic practices. Since 2002, Cornwell has published two more tomes on the Sickert-slash-Ripper connection. She released Chasing the Ripper, an Amazon Kindle e-single, in 2014, and followed it up with a reboot of sorts of Portrait of a Killer in 2017, now renamed as Ripper, The Secret Life of Walter Sickert. Let's address Cornwell's theories about how Walter Sickert's psychological profile fits into our contemporary concept of a psychopath. Cornwell writes that an examination of Sickert's works, his paintings as well as drawings, etches, and even sketches on letters and other ephemera, show signs of a deeply misogynistic mindset with a bend towards violence. So determined is she that Sicker's work subtly reveals a murderous inclination that, in order to prove this, Cornwall herself has become one of the biggest collectors of Walter Sickert's works of art. Interestingly, she has identified a few works as being eerily similar to the surviving crime scene photos of several of the Ripper victims. Sickert's fleshy nudes are frequently dappled with shadow and are experiments in light and dark, just as many Impressionist and Post-Impressionists had done in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Cornwell, however, has a different opinion, noting that to her eyes, Sickert's works are not mere experiments in light and dark, but that they are actually remembered scenes from Jack the Ripper himself, and that Sickert is revealing his crimes through his artistic subjects, which appear to have been, quote, slashed by paint and brushstrokes, unquote. The immediate comparison is to facial mutilation, for example, of people like Catherine Eddowes or of Mary Kelly, both known today through photographs taken of their corpses. Facial mutilation in a victim can be a number of things, but according to Cornwell, it frequently points to an intense hatred of the person being attacked. So, is Sickert taking his anger and hatred out on someone, perhaps a Ripper victim, on canvas? Cornwell's dissection of one of Walter Sickert's most famous, or dare I say infamous, series of works certainly seems to play along with her theory of painterly mutilation. And this series has the benefit of a rather scandalous title to help things along, the Camden Town Murder Series. This is a series of paintings completed by Sickert around 1908 that supposedly deal with a murder committed on September 11, 1907 in, surprise, surprise, a district of northwest London known as Camden Town. That night, a sex worker named Emily Dimmick was murdered in her home, killed by a deep slash to the throat. Like the Ripper deaths nearly two decades prior, the Camden Town murder caused a sensation in the press. Sickert, of course, was aware of the crime and with the furor surrounding it, not only from the press, but also because the art world was obsessed with the crime too, because the man arrested for the crime was an art dealer named Robert Wood. Fascinated, Sickert completed multiple paintings connected to this idea. Some reports count only four canvases as the true Camden Town murder images, while other historians claim upwards of 20. In one of the most famous, a work simply titled The Camden Town Murder and subtitled What Shall We Do to Pay the Rent, Sickert has painted a fleshy nude woman lying on an unmade bed, her behatted head turned away from the viewer. Next to her sits a man with clasped hands and hunched shoulders, his head hanging down. We see neither of their faces, and there is no way to tell whether the woman is alive or dead, though it's not looking good for the poor thing. Patricia Cornwell states that there are uncanny similarities between this canvas and the photograph of the corpse of Catherine Eddowes, who was pictured prone on her back with her mutilated face turned away and slightly to the right of the camera. In the Camden Town murder, the woman's turned face, Cornwell argues, 
is turned away to hide the fact that there was something horribly and unnaturally wrong with it. And the combination of the despondent man and a prone and vulnerable woman is unnerving, to say the least. To be fair, Walter Sickert was known to have been smart in his abilities to use sensationalism to his best advantage. And so it has been theorized that he completed the Camden Town series in order to shock people into paying closer attention to his work. Indeed, he even produced a dark, brushy, and rather indistinct painting titled, aptly enough, Jack the Ripper's Bedroom, that could be seen as a grabby attempt at infamy. But to Cornwell, these paintings are little hints that point to Sickert's culpability. To her, the similarities between the victim photographs and to Sickert's works are so strong that she wonders that anyone but the murderer himself could have depicted such scenes. And of course, Sickert was based in London. So while Patricia Cornwell could not pinpoint Sickert's exact location during the night of each and every crime, she notes that there was no reason to assume that he wasn't in London and therefore available and able to kill at will. And then there are more personal details that convince Cornwell of Sickert's hatred of women. Sickert was childless, she says, and was impotent, probably due to a botched surgery performed to correct what Cornwell identifies as a, quote, fistula of the penis. Probably this would have led to disappointment, not only in Sickert himself, but in his potential lovers as well, women who may have derided him and ridiculed him for his condition. His frustration and rage at not being able to perform sexually and at women as a whole, then, led him to seek other means of escape and gratification. Murder. This is where Cornwell's knowledge of current-day psychology and analysis of serial killers comes in handy because the link between murder and sexual dysfunction is frequently noted in such high-profile crimes. And then, there's the DNA evidence. Yes, for real, DNA evidence, Cornwell says that she was able to gather from forensic analyses that she herself commissioned. An investigative team performed DNA testing on the backs of envelopes and stamps of both Walter Sickert's personal correspondence, as well as a number of the Ripper letters that were sent to the police and newspapers in 1888 and in the years that followed. One particular test, a mitochondrial DNA test or mtDNA test, came back showing, quote, similar sequences in both sets of evidence. Not only that, but a comparison of the watermarks of the stationery used by Sickert matches up with those found in a few of the Ripper letters as well. Three watermarks, in fact, indicate three different types of brands of paper known to have been owned and used by Sickert, as well as having been used to create several Ripper letters. One of the stationery sets, she argues in her latest book, Ripper, The Secret Life of Walter Sickert, was only available in one set of 24 sheets. No more of this particular letterhead, she says, was made. What's more, some Ripper letters contain doodles and drawings, and who's most likely to draw or doodle? An artist, naturally. What are the chances, Cornwell asks us, that there would be DNA similarities, doodles and drawings, and stationary matches between these two disparate sets of letters, with a connection to a man whose artworks hint at an intense fascination with the dark side of society, and a possible deep-seated resentment towards the fairer sex. Cornwell was convinced. And as she says to interviewers, quote, This is so serious to me that I am staking my reputation on this. Because if someone literally proves me wrong, not only will I feel horrible about it, but I will look terrible, unquote. You can imagine that the response to this theory was swift and strong. 
Almost immediately after the publication of Cornwell's first Ripper book, the media ran with the story, as the media is wont to do. And art historians, ripperologists, and scientists came out of the woodwork to refute Patricia Cornwell's claims. The art world in general was irate. Even one of the art dealers known to have sold Cornwell a number of Sickert paintings, a man named Andrew Patrick, was noted to have said that the author had gone quite beyond the pale in attempting to prove her point. He says, quote, Everyone knows this stuff about Sickert is nonsense. He loved these dramatic titles and to play with ideas of menace, unquote. Even more infuriating was a rumor that Cornwell had insisted upon destroying one of Sickert's paintings in order to seek further evidence for her claims, ripping apart a canvas like Jack reportedly ripped his victims. This claim, Cornwell states, is patently false. But even if she didn't destroy one of Sickert's works, some think she still made a mistake. Curator Richard Schoen, who produced a well-received exhibition of Sickert's works at the Royal Academy of London in 1992, was interviewed by a UK newspaper saying, quote, I can't believe she's done this. It's such a red herring, and it all seems monstrously stupid to me." Unquote. People were angry that Walter Sickert became associated with one of the most notorious murders of all time. But how do things stack up when you level-headedly connect Patricia Cornwell's theories against particular evidence? That's coming up next, right after this break. So many of us think that we don't have the time to learn a new topic or pick up a new hobby, but we actually do because of The Great Courses Plus. This educational streaming service makes learning so easy and so fun, and there are thousands of lectures on practically any topic that you can think of, all taught by some of the best teachers in the world. The Great Courses Plus works for you. You can fit it into your schedule anywhere and anytime. You can either watch it on your lunch break or while you're on the treadmill, or you can listen along while you're driving or washing dishes. I recommend checking out their brand new course, Visual Literacy Skills, How to See. This course helps you to tune into your artistic impulses so you can discover symbols, themes, and visual storytelling all around you, all broken down to the basics of composition and design. So make learning a part of your daily routine now with The Great Courses Plus. My listeners have access to this fantastic offer, a full month for free, where you can check out anything and everything on The Great Courses Plus. So sign up now through my special URL to start your free month. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash art. When it comes to beauty products, we have so many choices. But what products are not only best for you, but for our world and our communities? That's why Thrive Cosmetics makes it so easy to look great and to help out and I am so happy to have discovered them. Thrive Cosmetics products provide amazing coverage, highlight your best features, and are created for long-lasting wear. All of Thrive Cosmetics' clinically proven ingredients are free of parabens and sulfates. 
I'm a big fan of their Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara, which gives my lashes amazing length and the fullness of false lashes without that fake look and without the lash extensions, of course. And talk about amazing, the Buildable Blur CC Cream is perfect for helping me get just the right amount of coverage without looking caked on. That is pretty great. And what else is great is that Thrive Cosmetics products are effective in more ways than just one. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates to help women who are in need so that they can thrive. Those causes include emerging from homelessness, surviving domestic abuse, and fighting cancer. And on top of it all, every Thrive Cosmetics product is vegan and cruelty-free, as certified by both Leaping Bunny and PETA, the leading authorities on cruelty-free cosmetics. And Thrive makes it so easy to look your best, too, with an auto-replenishment feature, so I never have to worry about running out of that amazing Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara, which I use every day. Start thriving and help women in need today by going to thrivecosmetics.com slash artcurious and enter code artcurious for 15% off your first purchase. That's T-H-R-I-V-E-C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash artcurious and enter code artcurious for 15% off thrivecosmetics.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Art Curious. Once the Fuhrer died down, several authors produced thoughtful pieces that detailed how Cornwell's claims may not really stack up against the surviving Ripper evidence. A substantive and thorough report by author Stephen P. Ryder was posted on the Jack the Ripper Casebook website, one of the top sites for Ripperologists to dissect evidence and converse about their suspects. In his report, Ryder notes that he doesn't necessarily attempt to refute Cornwell's claims, but to present a guide to the quote-unquote factual evidence of the case for those who have read Cornwell's books so that the people can come to their own conclusions. Stephen Ryder tallies the main concept presented in Portrait of a Killer and pairs them up one by one with the facts of the case to the best of his knowledge. First, there's the artistic interpretation, or the noted similarities between Sickert paintings and the known photographs of Ripper victims, particularly Mary Kelly and Catherine Eddowes. Here, we can concede that Sickert was fascinated with true crime, murder, and mystery. Heck, even the Camden Town paintings alone attest to this. Those themes just came with the territory for the subject matter he chose to portray. As curator Richard Schoen noted, quote, Sickert was interested in the music hall, the theatrical, and low life, and he played around with those themes just like Degas, his mentor, unquote. As we have discussed in the past of the Art Curious podcast, especially in our episode about the rivalry between Manet and Degas, many usually think of ethereal ballerinas and wispy tutus when Degas comes up in conversation. But Degas also frequently tackled heavy material in his works, including possibly domestic violence, sex work, and rape. And in the world of theater and dance in the late 19th century, those things were sadly often associated. A chunk of works created by the Impressionists and Post-Impressionists highlight the darker side of life, spurred on by many of the same problems endemic in London and elsewhere. Overcrowding, urbanization, industrialization, disconnection, disease. Artists portrayed violence, alcoholism, death, the list goes on. Sickert was not alone in this fascination. He probably wasn't even rare in his fascination. And let's not forget one of the biggest points about art interpretation and art appreciation, really. It is hugely subjective. What I might like, you might not like. And what I see in a drawing, you might not see. And our human natures also assure that we will continue to see whatever it is we want to see. So with that in mind, many out there choose to interpret Sickert's paintings as clues to his secret identity. 
Stephen Ryder does concede a couple of other points about Walter Sickert's work. First, he states that there may be evidence that Sickert did base one of his etchings on a photograph of one of the murder victims, but the evidence is shaky at best and has not been confirmed. Sickert often did use photographs as his basis of his works, like many others did at the time. But there are two things to note here. First, the crime scene photo of the gory Mary Kelly corpse, as well as the image of Catherine Eddowes after her death, these were not published in newspapers until after 1899 and were first published in France, 11 years after the crimes of 1888. Now, Sickert did travel to France frequently, and surely these photos would have caused enough of a sensation that it does entirely make it possible that he would have seen them and could have based later works on them. But does that make him a murderer? Was he, years after the fact, bragging about his unspeakable deeds, or possibly dealing with any lingering guilt or attempting to exercise his own demons but in pigment? Or was he just an artist using a potentially sensational image or images as a starting point for a continued study of themes that were always of interest to him? There is also the two-pronged possibility that any resemblance to the Ripper murder scenes is subjected to the viewers who choose to read the works of art in that way, and that any resemblance, as they say at the end of the movies, is purely coincidental. Next, there's Sickert's reported impotence and supposed sexual inabilities that fueled his hatred of womankind. Well, it turns out that the whole claim about Sickert's fistula only stems from one person, a man named John Lasore, who was Sickert's nephew by marriage. And Lasore states that it was only family hearsay that promoted the sensitive location of the fistula and that no documentary evidence exists to confirm it affected his sexual life in any way, including but not limited to his supposed impotence. And that connects with the next claim about Sickert's childlessness. That might very well be bunk. There have been multiple rumors, both during Sickert's lifetime and after, about illegitimate children that he sired. And writer quotes Sickert's close friend, the painter Jacques-Emile Blanche, as saying, quote, Sickert was immoral, with a swarm of children of provenance which are not possible to count, unquote. On top of all that, Sickert was a known philanderer who had multiple mistresses during his marriage to his first wife, and his wife even identified him as an adulterer as a reason for the dissolution of their marriage. So chances are high that Walter Sickert's plumbing worked just fine, and evidence exists to show that Sickert was enjoying himself in this matter while he was away on frequent trips to France, where he was known to have kept a mistress. And while Cornwall claims that no evidence exists showing that Sickert wasn't in London during the deadly fall of 1888, Ryder states that there are, in fact, multiple independent sources that state that he was in France. There is one letter in existence that Sickert wrote in France during the fall of 1888. Cornwell is quick to note that it doesn't have a postmark, so it is impossible to date precisely. But Sickert biographers also point over to letters of Sickert's family and friends, even Jacques-Emile Blanche, confirming Walter's presence again in France that fall. Blanche writes of visiting Sickert in France in September of that year. Sickert's mother wrote a letter from France in the same month, noting that her two sons, Walter and Bernard, were having a lovely holiday filled with swimming and painting. And even Sickert's own wife corresponded with her brother-in-law during that fall, noting that her husband had been abroad for a number of weeks. All told, though any number of excuses may be given to claim Sickert's presence in London, chances are good that he probably was in France during the same time as the first four Ripper murders. Absent for all, perhaps? except for the final death of Mary Kelly in November. 
But what about that damning DNA evidence that reportedly connects Sicker to Jack the Ripper? Well, this is where things get interesting, and pretty technical, too. It turns out that multiple DNA tests were completed by Patricia Cornwell's scientific team. The first test was what is known as a nuclear DNA test. And this is the type that you're probably familiar with, because this is the usual type of DNA testing used in the past few decades to trace historical lineages and to prove the identity of baby daddies and potential killers alike. This test came back negative, so no connections could be established between the Ripper evidence and Sickert's own correspondence. So that's when the team moved on to that mtDNA test. Now, let me attempt to explain the difference, but do keep in mind that an art historian is sharing this information, so please forgive me any errors. Though mtDNA tests are used the world over and are as trusted as their nuclear counterparts, there is an important factor which separates the mitochondrial version from the nuclear one, and that is that the mitochondrial DNA is not unique. Whereas nuclear DNA will uniquely match a person to the evidence, mitochondrial DNA cannot but what it can do is limit the number of a certain segment of a population. Stephen Ryder in his report compares it to blood typing. For example, he says, think about two different unrelated people living on two continents half a world apart and how they can both have A-positive blood types. If you're looking then for someone in the world with an A-positive blood type, then you're able to remove billions of possible suspects from your list. So, you know, like, goodbye, O negative. But you're still left with billions of type A folks. Similarly, with the mtDNA results, experts estimate that between 1 to 10% of the population would have similar strains of mtDNA. If we apply the most generous estimate, the 1%, the one that limits the number of people, then looking at the population for the Census of London at the turn of the 20th century, it would then yield the following result. The London population totaled about 40 million in 1900, and just having 1% of that chunk is 400,000 people. 400,000. Having Walter Sickert in that list certainly doesn't mean that he isn't Jack the Ripper, but it doesn't necessarily mean he is either. And what remains are hundreds of thousands of people who still might fit that bill. And then there's the issue with even performing the DNA testing in the first place. The surviving Jack the Ripper letters, as well as Sickert's own correspondence, they aren't a few days old. They are over 100 years old and they have been handled by dozens, if not hundreds, of people over the years. Everyone from archivists, policemen, investigators, journalists, family members, and so forth. As Ryder notes, the problem of DNA transferal from any number of individuals who most certainly were not wearing the requisite white gloves is a very serious consideration. This is something that even Cornwell discusses in her book, Ripper, The Secret Life of Walter Sickert. In fact, she says that her team probably never should have done the DNA tests in the first place because of this point alone. There's also the question of whether or not Sickert, let alone the Ripper, actually licked the stamps in the backs of the envelopes containing his letters. Now, this point may seem silly, but the Victorians were actually pretty scared of germs and bacteria in general, so it was common habit to use a moistened sponge to wet and seal correspondence. And Sickert and or the Ripper might not have even mailed their own letters or even stamped them, but could have handed them off to a maid, an assistant, a friend, or even a family member to post them. Again, the chances of DNA contaminated on these letters is then fairly high. Which brings us to the Ripper documents themselves. According to historians and Ripperologists, 
there is an estimated 600 surviving letters which were claimed to have been sent from Jack the Ripper or from those claiming leads or information about the crimes. Some of them were sent during that fateful fall of 1888, but many of them continued to be sent years later, with the last letters arriving in the mid-1960s. The vast majority of these letters are considered to be hoaxes. They were sent from all around the world. Though the majority were mailed in London, some even came from the United States, France, Australia, and even as far afield as South Africa. And of course, the grammar, spelling, penmanship, and so forth are vastly different, with contradictory suggestions and so-called proof found between them. In the UK alone, Ryder points out that mailing in fake Ripper letters became something of a, quote, sick national pastime in the years that followed the murders. And even some morally reprehensible journalists were suspected of getting in on the action of Ripper hoaxing in order to sell more papers. Two women were actually even arrested for forging Ripper letters. The only letter that most, but not all, experts consider to be possibly authentic is the one we read in our last episode, the so-called From Hell Letter, that was accompanied by a segment of a human kidney assumed to have come from Catherine Eddowes. But even this note has never been able to be completely confirmed. And that, too, could be a hoax or a prank. All of this is to say that between the hundreds of letters that exist as possible proof of Jack the Ripper himself, it shouldn't be surprising that similarities in phrases, watermarks, and stationery would pop up, but that none of them can conclusively be stated as coming from Jack the Ripper. So, who was Jack the Ripper then? Well, I am certainly not a Ripperologist, and so I'm not qualified to say very clearly. But I have to note that Stephen Ryder's factual comparison does give me great pause when it comes to identifying Walter Sickert as the killer. So much of the purported evidence is suspect and coincidental. Yes, when it comes to solving crimes, it can be true that even the little things do add up. And perhaps coincidences aren't coincidences at all. But if we stick to the dictum that people are presumed innocent until proven guilty, I couldn't easily convict Sickert if I was on a jury. He just happened to be a public figure whose works can be easily misread after the fact, and in light of 21st century tales of crimes and passion. In fact, the best summary of the Sickert slash Jack the Ripper phenomenon is a pointed and snarky one written for the Guardian newspaper's arts and design section. In a 2013 post, journalist Jonathan Jones sympathizes with whom he calls poor Sickert, whose name has been dragged through the mud by Cornwell and the like with their outlandish theories. Jones then continues on to declare that if we are pointing our fingers at Sickert as Jack the Ripper, then we can also easily identify him as another renowned Victorian monster. He writes, quote, Who knows? Perhaps he was Dracula. After all, Dracula enters modern culture in a novel published in Sickert's London when this harsh demonic painter was at work. I have researched this using the latest technology, and when you look closely at Sickert's painting of Minnie Cunningham, she has two small red puncture marks on her neck. As for the name Minnie, this is clearly a reference to Mina Harker in Stoker's Dracula, which is therefore a veiled portrait of Sickert and his dark side. The red dress Sickert's Minnie Cunningham wears is a confession of the blood he needs to stay alive. Case closed. Walter Sickert was Dracula. Unquote. Jones's sarcasm hits the juicy center of this tale and the woes of overinterpretation, and that last line sums it up perfectly. Perhaps, Jones says, Sickert was, quote, 
just a powerful painter whose art addresses the same themes of sex and city life that have turned the crimes of a nameless murderer into a modern myth. Unquote. Thank you for listening to the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com. Our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. And social media help is by Emily Crockett and Caroline Holler. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki, top-tier podcasts and video. Learn more at kabonki.com. And additional editing help is by Hannah Roberts. The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchorlight. Anchorlight is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchorlight encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. We are a fully independent podcast, so we rely on sponsors and donations to help keep us going. If you enjoy the show and have the means, please consider giving to help the show and thank you for your kindness. And if you don't have money to give, you can help out our show as well by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Because believe me, it makes a huge difference and helps new listeners to tune in. For more details on our show, including images and details from this episode, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Art Curious Pod. Check back in two weeks as we continue to explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the true crime aspects of art history. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.